long ago, when the goddess Nuwa was repairing the sky. She melted down a great quantity of rock into 36,501 large building blocks. One single block was left unused. It lay at the foot of Green Sickness Peak and possessed magic powers. It could grow or shrink to any size it wanted. Later, a Buddhist monk and a Taoist priest brought this stone into the world of mortals, where, in time, it grew into one of the undisputed classics of Chinese literature, the story of the stone, also known as a dream of red mansions. That laid-aside stone stands for both the protagonist of the novel, Jia Baoyu, and the author himself, Cao Shui-Qin. Chapter 70 of A Dream of Red Mansions, Cao Shui-Chin elaborated on the scene in which Jia Baoyu flies kites with his cousins. As well as helping readers understand Chinese people's kite-flying activities in the early Qing dynasty, this passage is also a lament on the part of the author regarding the fading of beautiful things for uselessness the world's prize he might bear, his gracelessness in history has no peer. Such are the words used to describe Jia Baoyu, the hero of the novel. As his cousin Xiang Yun says, he likes to be with the girls. In fact, Jia Baoyu is a male figure unprecedented in the history of Chinese literature. Uh, 剪然后一剪呢就看到剩下一个鸡蛋那么小接下来他说他告诉林黛玉说须得再放一个上去陪他这就是贾宝玉那我从某种角度上面相信这是曹雪芹的一种个性的演化也就是说他是一个非常温暖的非常付出感情的is the great novelist himself. It was in the days when he was writing the novel at the foot of the Fragrant Hills in Beijing. In the middle of winter, Yu Jinglian, an old friend of Cao Shui-Chin, came to visit. The veteran had retired from the army with a crippled leg and was only able to make a living by selling his paintings. But having failed to sell them for a good price, Yu Jinglian confessed to Cao Shui-Chin, trying to swallow back his tears, that his children had been starving for three days 
and there was nothing he could do to put bread on the table for his family. Though on a tight budget himself, Cao Shui-Chin did not hesitate to draw on all his savings and offer support to a friend in need. Furthermore, he insisted that Yu Jinglian stay for the night and that he would borrow some money on the man's behalf in the morning. That night, struggling to sleep, Yu Jinglian mentioned that some lord in the city was willing to pay several dozen tails of silver just for a kite. The amount he was offering would be enough to cover the living expenses of his family for an entire year. Upon hearing that, Cao Shui-Chin got off his bed in excitement and offered to teach his friend how to make a kite. Fortunately, Cao Shui-Chin had both bamboo sticks and paper available in his humble home. More than that, he was also quite a good painter in his own right. So the two men spent the night painting and binding sticks. Come dawn, they'd managed to assemble several beautiful kites. Although in deep doubt, Yu Jinglian went home with the money and food Cao Shui-Chin had given him, along with the kites. Days before the Chinese New Year, Yu Jinglian visited Cao Shui-Chin once again. Only this time, he was leading a donkey, fully loaded with chicken, ducks, vegetables, and a jar of good wine. The kites Cao Shui-Chin had helped him make had been all sold at a good price. Now they could both look forward to a luscious new year. Over the succeeding few years, Yu Jinglian's name became well known in the kite world of Beijing. Yet, from time to time, he would still visit Cao Shui-Chin for new kite designs. Sao 
，呃呃有病的人，啊、呃，而且无门申诉的人，有滋养之道啊，这种思想萌发了他要写非遗债机构。The collective essays on crafts for the disabled, compiled by Zhao Shuiqin, includes eight volumes themed on seal carving and making, kite making, weaving, porcelain making, knitting and darning, printing and dyeing, garden design and cooking. Back in the days of Qing Dynasty China, even the greatest rulers did not concern themselves with protecting the livelihoods of the disabled. Zhao Shuiqin's efforts testify not just to his knowledge, but also his compassionate heart. A codex of the collective essays on crafts for the disabled emerged in Beijing in the 1940s. Kong Xiangzi, then student of the National Peiping Art School, was allowed to copy several dozen pages. The original codex was taken away to Japan before finally vanishing. Zhao Xueqin, in our eyes, was a first-rate writer. 但是这一套书让我们看到另外一个面相，他是一个人道主义者呀，帮助这一个弱势族群。Today, in a corner of the Beijing Botanical Garden, there's a small dwelling in front of which stands a crooked ancient Chinese scholar tree. Legend has it that this was where Zhao Shuiqin wrote A Dream of Red Mansions. In the last century, people found a poem on the wall in the study of this residence that reads, Those who keep distance from the rich, but befriend the poor, for courtesy, are in the minority. Those who alienate families and friends for wealth are in the majority. It was dedicated to the host of the house by Ao Bi, a friend of Cao Shui Qin. This indirectly confirms the legend that had circulated throughout the area for nearly three centuries. This tree is a very famous tree in this area. People call it Wei Bo. 一九八四年，四王府村有个老太太叫任淑珍，亲自跟我说，在三七年，她的奶奶跟她说，说贾宝院就住在村西边整白旗的微博树那，我们那。是贾宝玉是谁？说贾宝玉就是曹雪芹呐，他这个传说很符合自传说了。The path that leads from Cao Shuiqin's residence to the depths of the hills has been named the Cao Shuiqin Trail.
It was on this trail that Zhao Shui-Chin would walk, carrying a medicine box on his back, on his way to offer medical services to locals, or just strolling aimlessly, pondering over the writing of A Dream of Red Mansions. From time to time, the scenery along the trail would become his source of inspiration. This giant crescent rock that has been here for centuries of time is said to be the prototype of the sky-mending stone of Niuwa and the magic jade in the novel. And this rock-penetrating Chinese Tuja might have led him to think of a bond of old made by stone and flower. Cao Shui-Chin and his wife had some happy days of their own after their baby was born. Despite the financial problem the family was facing, the newborn added some spice to Cao Shui-Chin's life in middle age. However, it was a period of happiness that proved fleeting. As the hero of the novel, Zhao Baoyu is unusually mischievous, yet his mind is as sharp as a needle. And it's unlikely to find one in a hundred to match him. As the story goes, one day, a few girls go to collect flowers in the garden and begin playing match my flower, but soon they start arguing about a species of orchid and end up in a fight during which one of the girls, Kaltrop, spoils her new skirt in a muddy puddle. At this point, Baoyu arrives and finds out Kaltrop's plight. I'm sure the Shues could afford to spoil a hundred skirts like this one every day, he said. But that's not the point. Aunt Shue is a bit inclined to nag. I've often heard her complaining that you are extravagant and a bad manager and don't know how to look after things properly and so forth. I'm afraid if she gets to see it, you are going to have rather a lot of that sort of thing to listen to. As it turns out, what Baoyu says is exactly what Kaltrop's been thinking. After getting Kaltrop's consent, Baoyu has his chief maid, Aroma, prepare her skirt that is tailored the same way for Kaltrop to change into. Upon parting ways, Kaltrop reminds Baoyu, you won't ever tell your cousin Pan about this, will you? What? Put my head inside the mouth of a tiger? said Baoyu laughing. You must think I'm crazy. One day, Grandma Jia invites Granny Liu to have tea at Green Bower Hermitage. And Baoyu hears Adamantina order the teacup used by Granny Liu to be left outside. And he understands immediately. 
it's because Granny Leo has drunk from it. And in Adamantina's eyes, the cup is now contaminated. He then suggests Adamantina give the cup to Granny Leo, saying, She's very poor, and if she sold it, she could probably live for quite a long while on the proceeds. Adamantina agrees. Later, Bao Yu finds a junior maid of Grandma Jia's and entrusts the cup to her, saying, When Granny Liu goes, see that she takes this cup with her, will you?啊,而家保育是主子啊,他們出錢給家保育祝壽,然後大家在一起啊,喝酒啊,什麼什麼菜拳啦,唱小曲啦,然後呃最後很些數把的睡在一地,啊,這完全是違反了當時的那個規矩
and Bao Yu, disappointed and agonized, becomes a provincial graduate as his family wishes before leaving home to become a monk. Uh 就是人生终极意义，人活在世界上有什么意义？那么一部石头记，我认为它的价值就在于用这块石头的清见清闻、清见清闻是一个书里头的话，清见清闻说明在现实人生中确实存在着有情之天下。即便是短暂的，即便是
Cao Shui-chin, in the process of writing, was interrupted by bustling noises outside. It turned out that his students, the brothers of Dun Min and Dun Cheng, had come to visit him. These two brothers of royal descent had always respected their teacher for his unyielding character. Dun Cheng even wrote a poem paying tribute to Cao Shui-chin. Rely not on the powers, write instead in the village of yellow leaves. The village of yellow leaves, in this instance, symbolizes the fragrant hills in Beijing during autumn. The scenic fragrant hill in autumn has been a subject that many Chinese poets, other than Dun Cheng, have dealt with. After some small talk, their topic switched to the novel Cao Shui-Chin had been writing and the characters in it. By this point, the manuscripts of the novel had been circulating through the literary circles of Beijing. Whenever a friend visited and asked to read the manuscripts, Cao Shui-Chin was happy to lend them. As a result, although the novel had been finished and was being revised, the manuscripts were rarely complete, scattered among Cao Shui-Chin's friends. The brothers didn't leave until the sun was going down. Stepping on the narrow path, covered in red and yellow leaves, they headed back towards the city. Dun Cheng wrote a poem about this visit and dedicated it to Cao Shui-Chin. Covering the trail and faded is the daisy. On porridge and in debt lives the family. Dilapidated and leaking is the dwelling. Only in dreams continues his house's glory. He treats his guests to bruise despite meager wages. To the West Hills in the afterglow, he toasts daily. As the legend goes, an old lady was living alone in the neighborhood, and although having little himself, Cao Shui-Chin often lent her a helping hand, collecting herbs to treat her ailments. The intelligent and outgoing old lady brought a lot of laughter to Cao Shui-Chin. and she's thought to be the model for the clever Granny Liu in A Dream of Red Mansions.
In the eyes of his fellow villagers, Cao Shui-jin was a learned scholar and a doctor who provided free treatment and effective remedies. Whilst for Cao Shui-chin, he got to learn about the lives of the commoners and gain a grassroots perspective that benefited the writing of his novel. That是光绪年间的人。他曾经向他的儿子赵思成讲过，说曹雪芹在整白旗啊，种芹菜。干嘛呢？当药材。因为芹菜这种药材治什么？治骨症，也就是大肚子症。曹雪芹呢，用芹
有一点跟汤显祖不一样，汤显祖认为现实世界里头没有有情之天下，有法之天下嘛。而曹雪芹认为，他在现实世界里头有存在着有情之天下。那么，曹雪芹这个这个思想呢，秦的思想呢，继承了、发扬了汤显祖的这个这个秦的这个这个思想。我认为在文学史上，在思想史上也很有价值。One early morning in fall in 1762, Dun Chang came to visit his brother Dun Min at Taiping Lake in Beijing. Upon entering his residence, Dun Chang found Cao Shuiqin, who then told Dun Chang that he had arrived the previous evening and drunk with Dun Min. By then, Dun Min was still asleep, but Cao Shuiqin was up craving for more wine. Dun Chang immediately took his teacher to a tavern. However, when getting in, both of them realized they had no money. So, without hesitating, Dun Chang took off his saber from his waist as a pledge. There, they enjoyed themselves, drinking and declaiming with gusto. After savoring the wine. Cao Shuiqin wrote a long poem to thank Dun Chang. Although it's been lost, we can imagine the scene that day from the poem Dun Chang wrote in response. Worthless with me. Never can my saber compare to Liu Qian's. Skinful after skinful we drink, full of words is now my heart. In delight exclaims Sir Cao, his poems sharp as a knife. A year later, in 1763, Cao Shuiqin's son fell ill. As a good father, he did everything he could, but still failed to cure the boy. Not long after, Cao Shuiqin's son died. The tragedy struck Cao Shuiqin all of a heap. Why had fate seen fit to unleash a cataract of misfortunes on his clan, his family, and himself? Years of living in poverty and strenuous writing had eaten away at his health. Losing his son was the last straw. There was nothing for it but for Cao Shuiqin to take to drink.
It wasn't long before he himself became seriously ill. On his deathbed, perhaps Cao Shui-Chin had feelings of both joy and sorrow, just like when Bao Yu bade his father farewell. Or perhaps he was thinking of Bao Yu's words and his confused giggling when he parted with his family. I know it is time to go. Off I go. Enough of this foolery. It is over. On Chinese New Year's Eve, snow fell on the fragrant hills in Beijing. Born and bred in South China, Cao Shui-Chin was always fond of the northern snow. And now, at the age of 48, he forever parted from this world amid the whirling snowflakes. Left behind him was his wife in floods of tears, as well as a classic work that was to become the pride of the Chinese nation. Cao Shui-Chin's life spanned the reigns of Emperor Kangxi and Emperor Chen Lung of the Qing dynasty, often referred to as the last golden age of China's feudal dynasties. He witnessed the country's best days and went through the worst hardships it had to offer, all the time somehow managing to turn all of them into a plaintive and yet beautiful elegy to a bygone era and its lost ideals. Nandao,呃,呃,我们阅读红楼梦,呃,留下来的眼泪,曹奇留下来的眼泪, 难道仅仅是一首导红的挽歌吗？也不是，就是说《红楼梦》一书啊，产生与封建社会的默契。但它对中国的新民主主义的文化产生了巨大的影响。在反帝反封建的呃五四运动中啊，所有的风云人物，你
Historical records show that the first 80 chapters of the novel, with comments by Zhe Yangjai, could be purchased at a price as high as dozens of tales of silver in markets in the years before Cao Shui-Chin's death. In 1791, literateurs Chung Wei-Yuan and Gao Er gathered the complete 120 chapters of the novel and reviewed and lightly edited them before printing them using a movable type system. In 1792, Chung Wei-Yuan and Gao Er made further corrections and printed a second version. These two versions of the novel enjoyed the widest popularity with readers. But even before those two versions had started to circulate, the novel, with its irresistible literary glamour, had already secured its place in the hearts of Chinese literati. In the early 20th century, some scholars, including Hu Shi, put forward the idea that the last 40 chapters of the novel had been written by Gao Er. But as research into the novel went further and deeper, more experts started to believe that all of the 120 chapters of the novel had been written by Cao Shui-Chin, and that all Cheng Wei-Yuan and Gao Er had done was to perform necessary editorial tasks. Sandra 前面八十回写的再好也是为这个东西最后准备的叙述是不可能的不但给别人叙述是不可能的给自己叙述也是不可能的我也写过各种各样的长篇小说你不要说叙四十回你让我叙半回也不可能啊你写过是不同的时间不同的心情你如果这个书的原稿丢了你自己再写一遍也不可能除非你存盘了除非你存盘了。The following year, just after the second version had come out, a ship sailed from Zhejiang to Japan, carrying nine sets of the 120-chapter novel. Two weeks later, the ship arrived in Japan. A dream of red mansions had begun its overseas journey. In the first half of the 19th century, 
Europeans, including missionary Robert Morrison, translated excerpts of the novel and introduced them to their countries. In the 1970s, the couple Yang Xianyi and Gladys Yang, and David Hawkes and his son-in-law, John Minford, published their English translations of the novel, causing a sensation in the Western academia. In 1981, sinologist Li Chihua and his wife Jacqueline Alazais published the French version of the novel in France. This was the culmination of 27 years' hard work. A French critic said its publication filled a harrowing void of two centuries and that the novel seemed to have been created by the joint efforts of the French novelists Marcel Proust Pierre Carrelet de Marivaux and Stendhal. By the end of the 20th century, full translation of the novel had been accomplished in the world's most widely spoken languages. The publications of these editions further solidified its status in world literature.常常讲这一段生是生道是道如是如一个和尚跟一个道士两个人在手牵手在一起这是他设计是一个很美的贯穿而这个很美的贯穿都要融到我们的生命底蕴里头来如果说这个地球上的树都没有了突然发现某个角
Be done.